How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And as you picked up, do you notice, how can we sing the Lord's song without our musicians and without the leading? And that was meant to describe a little bit of what these exiles felt when they found themselves in Babylon, that their worship, their temple, the priesthood, everything that they depended on to keep their faith alive, at least everything they had depended on in the past, was gone. And did you pick up at the end of that psalm that um, Chris was leading us in, the horror of that last verse? Daughter Babylon, happy is the one who repays you for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now this verse is often used as a description of how our Bible has not tried to hide away the awkward things but includes them in it, because that is a verse written by a psalmist, a psalm writer, a songwriter in exile, who has overcome with anger and with a sense of wanting vengeance on the people who did this to them. And it's included in there, and it's not a suggestion that anybody should ever go and do it. It's not a recommendation of how we should react to anything, but it's included in there to let us see the anger and the horror of what these people faced. There's a picture of Israel. It is the blue bit and the sort of mustardy bit just down below it uh, is the kingdom of Judah. We explained a number of times how it was divided because Solomon's two sons couldn't decide who ought to be king, so they took a bit each. And that was the start of the slippery slope downwards that ended up in exile. And you can see just to the top right corner, Assyrian Empire. See that? If you could even nod, I've seen one or two nods, good, well done. Nod anyway, this is the answer. Now, I remember this from primary school. See if anybody gets the rest of this. I must have been P6 or P7. Uh, Helen, we're relying on you here. It's the first line of a poem. That's the one. How have you known in advance? The Assyrians came down like the wolf on the fold. Their cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, which is strangely the colours of our Jubilee uh, celebration, but they were the Assyrian colours, purple and gold. What's it called? The, The destruction of Sennacherib. The destruction of Sennacherib. I had no idea what that poem was about, having learnt it in school. Uh, until I started reading this sort of stuff about the Assyrians. So they came from just top right, this great big country, and marched down into, and took the blue bit. They took the blue bit and they took away everybody they thought was valuable. So pause and think for a minute. What, who would they have taken from among us? And left us as something else. But they didn't take the bottom bit Uh, That was when the Babylonians, a few years later, fell out with the Assyrians. And they were even bigger and further north and further west. East, east to the right, yes. And they decided to take the whole thing. And they came right down into Judah. And they flattened Jerusalem. And again, they took away all the skilled, all the valuable, all the educated, all the young. Anyone that they thought could be useful, they took them away. Now, do you notice that that we read 
The two verses were, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. They cried, Tear it down. Tear it down to its foundations. Do you see Edom? Just to the south of the little mustard bit? That's the Edomites. And they had been rivals of Israel. And they enjoyed the fact that the Babylonians came down and destroyed it all. And when the Babylonians took everyone they wanted and went north again, the Edomites came in and cleared up the rest. And the story goes that some of the people who were left behind by the Babylonians were the children. Because they were no use to them. People would have to look after them. People would have to feed them. But the Edomites thought worse than that. And they came in and slaughtered them. And that's why we have that terrible verse. Happy is the one, and it's against Babylon, because Babylon stepped back and let the Edomites do this. And therefore the Israelites, their, their cry of vengeance was, Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So that's the background to that horror verse in there. Um, against these Edomites and against these Babylonians. But you can only begin to think of the horror of living in those days. And I know something that I bet you nobody else in the room knows. And I only know it because I've been digging deep into things looking at this. Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Does that mean anything? Herod the Great was the, um, was the pretend king in Israel under Roman Empire when Jesus was born. Herod the Great's family came from Edom. And what did he do around Bethlehem and around Jerusalem? He also killed the children. Wow. Imagine that lingering in his DNA for all those centuries. Anyway, there's, there's the great empire that these exiles were spread out across. And I put, see the two little yellow boxes? That's the north and south bits of Israel, the best I could manage to put them on that map. And they were spread across all of that. And about three million of them were taken away and spread across all of that. And about 700,000 were apparently left in Israel. That's about 20%, yeah? So you imagine the devastation on a population when four-fifths are taken away and one-fifth left behind to run the nation. So there they are, spread all across that thing. What, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week. What must that have felt like for them? Well, they were scattered thinly because that empire runs, you can see, from the left uh, right over to Greece, on the right, right over to India, and down a bit and over to the left, right into North Africa, and right down to the Arabian Sea, you huge, I mean, nation after nation are included in there. And these people were spread across that, scattered thinly, living in very different cultures. I should have put an S on that, because it's not all one culture. They're living in very different sorts of places. The political powers are huge and far removed from them, right? They don't have representatives in the assembly of this empire, right? No, like, like ourselves. <laughs> okay, sorry. Anyway, sorry, I'm not trying to get political at all. Uh, it was multi-religious, multi-religions, 
right? Spread across all of that. All sorts of variations and shapes and sizes of every kind of gods and goddesses and everything you could ever think of. And these people were living in the midst, scattered amongst all of this, with echoing round in their heads, thou shalt have no other gods but me. I'm wondering, what on earth is this like? Because we've come from a land where there was only one God. We made sure there was only one God. In Judaism, the homeland was very tiny and not at all organised for them anymore. So what was it like if you were the tiny wee crowd left in Israel? That's about, I'm guessing, a wee bit less than half the population of Northern Ireland uh, trying to run this place. They were weak. They were overrun by all the tribes living around them. You can see all the different tribes who all decided there's no soldiers left in that country. There's hardly even any young adults left in that country. There's nobody with any power, with any wealth. So we just come in and take whatever we want, which is what they did. There were then competing cultures because those people then settled down and made their own homes. They took the best farms and the best ranches and all those sorts of things and lived in them. The religion of the Jews became very weak because their temple was destroyed. Their priests had been killed. Uh, it was really very much left to the people to try to hang on in faith. And the infrastructure of their nation was destroyed. Cities were flattened. All the politics were gone. And again, they found themselves even more distant from the people who made all the decisions. Isn't it? it's, it's really terribly distressing to think what it must have been like for them. And how did they react to all of this? Because this is where we're getting to, is living in our world. Uh, we're, I mean, I'm hoping that you're making comparisons between some of these things that were affecting these exiles and what it's like to be us. Uh, and like, we're a, still a crowd, yeah? Um, but in many parts of since I'm on camera, I'll just say in the Church of Ireland, the crowd is scattered very thinly. Yeah, it's uh, very different cultures around us, all those things. I'm not going through them all again. Just let you make your own comparisons. What is it like to be, uh, to try to be living in a Christian culture when it's competing all the, day, all the time now with the cultures around us? So here's some of the reactions of these, and I'm hoping you find these helpful. One is revenge and anger was one of the things the exiles felt. They got really irritated. So we read it in that psalm. Blessed are those who pay you back for what you've done to us. And at times, we as the church ought to get angry at what our cultures and, th and nations around us are trying to do to the Christian gospel. But at other times, we're getting angry for the wrong reasons. We're just getting angry because we think it's taking away our power and our influence that we think should be ours by right. Yeah? That we should get to make all the decisions on how things should be in our world. And maybe we're beginning to discover that we're far removed from the corridors of power. And therefore some of that anger is misplaced. And we need to be thinking about other ways to react in our world. Sadness and grief. Psalm 42 was also, and we're going to hear a wee bit of this in our prayers. Psalm 42 was also probably written uh, in exile. 
And you can imagine people living in Iran or Iraq or in Turkey or in North Africa, far, far removed from uh, Jerusalem and everything, singing this or writing these words or singing a song like this, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. My tears have been my food day and night. While they, speaking of the people all around them, these other cultures, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Your God seems very weak. So they had sadness and grief about the world they were now living in. And they also had this from the same psalm. They also, they also had a, a sense of if only it could have been different. If only we could go back. These things I remember. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. When they were in Israel, they loved their festivals. They loved to gather in Jerusalem, relive the great moments of liberation from Egypt, relive the great moments of God feeding them in the wilderness, giving them their law, helping them to build their temple. And now it was a memory. And how they wished they could go back. Eventually some of them did get to go back. But we'll discover in a few weeks, um, not everybody decided they wanted to. They'd begun to enjoy a wee bit of Babylon. We're all right, thanks, was another attitude. To be honest, this, these verses were before exile happened. Because God had been warning them through this prophet Micah. And they just decided not to believe him. And Micah records what they were saying. They were saying, no harm will come to us. The Lord's with us. We've nothing to worry about. Nothing to think about. Sure, just let it all happen. Isn't God in control? So let it all go whatever way it wants in that world out there. One day it'll all work out. But we'll keep our heads down. And another attitude was, it's all very far away. How does this affect me? We won't have hard times. We won't have war or famine now. Not actually trying to talk about war coming to our land or anything like that. But it is possible for us at times to think, um, well, I've got my wee bit of church. I've got my other things I do. Why would I worry about whether or not the gospel is spreading in our nation? Whether or not things are warring against us to squeeze the kingdom of God out of how things work around us? Easy for us to think, well, I've got the wee things I go to, and I'm happy with that. I just keep out of the way, and I don't do anybody any harm. But these big things of God, what are happening to them? And another one is, well, we're God's chosen ones. Jeremiah said to them, stop believing those deceitful words, and then he quotes the deceitful words that they're hearing, that there were, they, there were people that Jeremiah called false prophets who were declaring, we're safe. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. So nothing can go wrong. And I give it time. Everything will come back to normal. The Lord Almighty said to the people of Jerusalem, do not listen to what those prophets say. They're filling you with false hopes. They tell you what they have imagined and not what I have said. 
there were a group of false prophets in Jerusalem who were sending letters out to the people in exile, telling them, you'll be home within four years. So don't worry about settling down. Don't worry about working anything out. Uh, just keep your heads down and you'll all be back here. And you know the passage that we read last week, which we're reading in today, Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah says, 70 years before anyone will come back. So in actual fact, most of you won't ever be back. Now, that's not trying to depress you at all, but uh, they, Jeremiah was saying that it's very easy for people to tell you all is well in the world out there. It's really a good place. Uh, and it is. There's lots of incredibly good things going on around us and things growing and things getting better. Uh, but there's still, there's still a sense of the we as the people of God and as the carriers of the kingdom of God and of the presence of God and of the purposes of God are just being marginalised all the time. And that, I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. I'm suggesting that what we do with that will decide whether or not it's a bad thing. Because there are positives in this. There are opportunities in this. And what if God is in this? Because that was one of the things that the exiles began to consider and the prophets began to speak to them. That what if God is in behind this exile? What if God is part of what's going on and is actually trying to reshape them and is actually trying to reshape his world? What if God might be in the sort of culture that we find ourselves living in these days? This, this world that seems to be just gently pushing us away from it. So come back to those four um, ways of reacting that we looked at last week. Of, well, I don't care. Uh, ooh, it's all too much. And then, well, I'll just sort this out. And then, uh, our Zelensky kind of thinking, these are big questions. There's big stuff going on in the world. How are we supposed to be reacting to it as the church? Something of, of the questions that face us aren't just because of COVID. Uh, they're questions that have been facing us for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, questions facing big denominations like the Church of Ireland as to how do we go on? How do we exist? How do we shape ourselves? Uh, how do we present what it means to be followers of God? Uh, what does it look like for us to be uh, in our world but not of our world? Uh, how do we react in our places of work? How do we react in our changing politics? How do we react in our changing uh, shape of Europe and UK and Ireland and everything's going on around us? And I mean, if you live in Finland today, you're sitting wondering what is changing about our nation and what's it going to look like in the future? Uh, and again, people who have to make big decisions about all of this are facing genuine questions and things they have to think about. I was at General Synod, uh, not last week, but the week before, and uh, for the first time, we have 11 bishops sitting on our stage. Now you're thinking, well, what's significant about that? Uh, what's significant about that is that before that, the year before that, we had 12. We've lost a diocese in the Church of Ireland. We knew the way, and some of you have belonged to churches in the past, that things shrunk so much that you'd get joined to another one. Well, things have shrunk so much in parts of Ireland that we've lost the diocese and the bishop. 
uh, and somebody now has a diocese and they've got a good name for it, at least this is the nickname for it, is the, the Diocese of the Wild Atlantic Way. Right, so it runs right down the west coast of Ireland. Uh, now that's the one to be bishop of, isn't it? Oh, imagine uh, getting to live out there all, all, all year round. But things are changing. Things are moving and reshaping. Uh, in the Church of Ireland now, we have a thing called ordained local ministry. Uh, because we can't get enough of Chris's and me anymore in the Church of Ireland. Uh, so in some church... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, that's part of their plan. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you editing this later? <laughs> uh, and, you know, so things are reshaping. And so now we have a number of churches, even in our diocese, where they couldn't find a, a one of these people. So they, they actually, we have some churches now who are being led by lay people. And uh, they do a, a training course while in situ in their churches, and they get ordained. Uh, it's called local, ordained local ministry. Again, reshaping how, how we exist and how we shape our church and life among us uh, to face the times that, that we're living in. And uh, we also, at General Synod, we were proposing and passing the beginning of, uh, of a new training thing that it doesn't train clergy, but trains something called pioneer ministers. People who are going to be able to start new things in communities where church has shrunk way down to hardly anything. Uh, so Pioneer Ministry is now officially a Church of Ireland uh, strategy and pattern. And the planting of new churches will be part of that. The starting of new projects and new ideas. So in all sorts of ways, uh, people we're beginning to respond to this strange, odd, exile-type world that we're beginning to live in. One of the difficulties for us here in Beaver is we can look around and think, well, sure, none of that touches us, really. And in some ways it doesn't. We go on uh, being who we are, um, thankfully. But it isn't the same everywhere. So I want to ask you some questions, just to finish. Because uh, I want you to get, I want to get you thinking. See if you can go away thinking about some things. Where does mission happen in the future? Because the world that I grew up in, all the mission happened in the church buildings and we invited people to come to them does the church organize it here and we all join in or are we coming into a world where the church trains us for mission and we do it where we work and live different way of seeing something that we're called to because we are called to be a missional church Does the whole church have to meet together? Like we are this morning, Sunday mornings. We've also got Sunday evenings. We've got Friday nights. No, we don't have Friday nights, sorry. We go, <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, we do have a Thursday morning service, but I'm kind of thinking there, the, the, the culture that we're living in these days um, is eating up every moment of every day, isn't it? I mean, you're, it's seven days a week, 24 seven. Uh, even Tesco claims it's 24 seven shopping and then it shuts for, for a night. But um, the, no, in our culture, we can no longer claim Sunday morning is sacrosanct. There's all sorts of things going on on Sunday mornings. And I think one of the difficulties for people who want to be faithful to church and to their life of faith is the, the clashes all the time on times. Uh, so it's part of the future of the church that we aren't just Sunday mornings. So that if there's 
sport for your children and you have to be there on a Sunday morning. Well, maybe there is a church Friday night. Maybe there's a church on Monday morning. Is it possible? And likely exiles living far, far away from Jerusalem, all the patterns of temple worship and everything were gone. They had to invent new ways and new ways of being faithful to what they knew to be the things they ought to be doing. So as the future of, uh, of church, I mean, could you imagine a world where we're Sunday morning and not Breda Parish just along the carriageway is Saturday night uh, and somebody else is Friday night? And that if, if your timetable suddenly shifts and you can't be where you want to be at the time you'd like to be, well, there's lots of options things around us? Are, are there other ways that churches could be doing this together and sharing what happens? And I'm only guessing all of this. I've no plan for any of it. It's just I am wondering how, how do we go forward with uh, the strains and stresses of working patterns and family patterns and social patterns and sport and recreation patterns um, but Christian festivals that have been largely secularised and they've become holidays not holy days. Is there something we need to do across the big church to reclaim and reimagine the festivals? And I'm not pointing the fingers at anybody here because I'm as much part of this world as anybody else. Uh, but the last weekend you want to plan to do very much is Easter weekend because that's the weekend everybody goes away rather than the weekend where everybody gathers for a festival. Do we need to think about how do we reclaim that festival back out of the bank holiday world and do it some other time or some other way? Community used to bring people to church. So you plumped a church down and we've got some great photos and images that we've been looking at recently where when beaver was growing as a community, you plumped something down in the middle of it and before you knew it, people started to come to it. Uh, that was how things used to work. That's long gone, hasn't it? Uh, people don't just turn up uh, for no reason at all. And an example of this is, is Harry here? I don't think I saw Harry come in. Harry is an ordained minister in the Congregational Church. You may or may not have known that. Um, every year I do, between Chris and I, we do about three weddings. Because in our churches, Church of Ireland's relationship to the world, we can only marry you if you're prepared to get married in this building or a similar Church of Ireland building somewhere. Harry's a congregational minister and his church sees it a bit different, although he's retired, right? he's part of us. Uh, Harry reckons he does maybe up to nearly 50 weddings in a year because he can do them in hotels and back gardens and parks and all sorts of places. There's something there about us connecting to our community that we have a very old-fashioned rule which drives him and me up the walls, doesn't it? When I have to say to people, no, it has to be here or you're not getting married. Uh, can you imagine saying that to people when they've already planned or were dreaming of um, top of sleeve Donard? Or something, that's your one. Or we no, we ain't doing wing walking. <laughs> okay. There are limits to this. But you know what I mean? There's gotta be some fresh thinking about how how our church connects with our community and yeah, how it lives it out. In a few, in a, just a few weeks we'll be celebrating um, Platinum Jubilee. We're only having one event here in this building because the uh, community association residents thing have invited us and imagine have invited the church to come and be part of their planning. 
That's a big plus. Right? That's opposite to exile. They're actually inviting us into their planning. And they're planning a whole range of events. And this is part of exile thinking. Can we go and join in their events? Sorry, I said that very badly. I apologise to anybody who's watching that. Can we go and join in our events? There are events. This community inviting us to be part of the planning and the setting up of our events. So we would have to work miracles to get all of those people into this building. But they've invited us to come and be part of theirs and call it ours. And that seems to me to be ex good exile thinking. How do we become part of the culture we're in? Part of the organisation of that culture? Part of the infrastructure of that culture? Rather than just sitting on the outside of it, wondering when it's going to come to us. There's a wee bit of switch thinking needs to go on in us. Now, in case you're thinking this is all too difficult, I think God is in it. Jeremiah sent this letter to the exiles. We read it last week. We read it again today. And he's in the middle of 2022 here in South Belfast or East Belfast or Lisburn or Ballygad or wherever it is you're part of Antrim. Yeah. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. As we work our way into the future, and I'm talking about a future that goes way beyond me, and maybe a future that even goes way beyond my children. But a future that hits our grandchildren and their children. And it's hard to then imagine what that would look like or who they even are. Uh, but these people in exile began. Not all of them. It's true. And we will look at some of the stories. Um, they began to look at how they could be faithful to God. How they could be faithful to the calling of God. That had been given to them through Abraham and Sarah. How they could be a blessing to the world. And you know what? From within their midst came the Messiah. It was about 500 years later. But God found a, faith, a faithful teenage girl. And the world began to change. So God is looking for faithful older people like me. Younger people like some of them out the back. Uh, learning how to transition to secondary school. Could you imagine doing that again? Uh, and some of them are doing it with excitement and fear. And, but they're in their culture and in their world. And we need to be faithful to God to help them shape it and help them to find God in it. So we're going to sing quietly. So could I ask the exiled musicians, would you like to make your way back onto stage? Symbolising that... We are going to take our culture seriously. And we are going to be faithful to God in it. And we are going to see things happen in it. Things of God and things that are good. Things that are of growth and of prosperity. Of hope 
and a future.